Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Ethics of Faith in Trials. Curtis. Thank you, Ron. Good afternoon. It's wonderful, as it always is, to be here with you guys on this March the 4th. Uh, it's finally arrived. Last time I spoke with you up here was January the 28th, and I gave everyone some homework to read. Uh, actually, a little bit more than what we're going to cover today, but read the first chapter of James, verses 2 through 18. And so this is the second part uh, of a series that I began back in January called the Ethics of Faith series. And so when we first uh, started this series about a month ago, what we started talking about was what this series was all about. We started talking about uh, the letter of James and the primary themes that we find in the letter of James. And in that first message, we saw the ethics of faith in our identity. And so one of the things that we did was, is we kind of identified who was it that wrote this letter, this epistle of James. And we concluded that most of the evidence shows or uh, can be demonstrated that the most likely individual to have written this letter was James the Just, also known as James the brother of the Lord, Jesus' actual physical brother. Uh, we also talked about how this letter made some, or had some, uh, somewhat of a difficult time getting into the New Testament. So we saw a little bit about the history of the New Testament canonization, and in the process of the New Testament being canonized, there were certain books or documents that were not readily accepted, just real quickly. And we talked about some of the figures throughout history, like Martin Luther, uh, who seemed to have kind of a low view of the book of James. But despite this, despite some of these early hesitancies, some of these early uh, you know, withholdings of whether or not James should be included a part of the New Testament, today, when you go and you look at all the different things that James, uh, or is it, all the different studies, all the different sermons uh, that you know, uses James, we see that Today, in the modern age, James is quite the book when it comes to a reference within New Testament churches, whether it be uh, Bible studies, whether it be sermons. There is just a host of material out there that has been written on the book of James. So today, we're going to move forward. And as the title suggests, we're going to move forward, The Ethics of Faith in Trials. That's the primary thing that James seems to be talking about in James, the first chapter, verses 2. Through 11. So the theme that I've presented to us today, and when we look at these verses, James 1, verses 2 through 11, what we see is, is that James is talking about responding to trials in a godly way. Responding to trials in a godly way. Make sure, to put this in a verbal form, make sure you respond to trials in a godly way. You know, we live in a world today that, for a lot of reasons, that is very characteristic or embodies the spirit of instant gratification. A lot of this is through technology, the technology that we have advanced in, does things for us that used to we had to manually do. But unfortunately, in the process of so much technology, so much fast pace, and I want it now, instant gratification, even the marketing that is created around products is you know, meant to 
have you have that mindset because it's going to give the companies or the manufacturer or whoever is making that product a better chance of getting you out there into the door and buying that product. I think that in the process of this, I think most of us would agree that we've lost the virtues of patience, the virtues of perseverance, and an appreciation for working for something and what that does for us. I think that even though we in the church, we as Christians, understand cognitively and intellectually that that's not right, that that's not something that produces godly character, that that's not something that produces the maturity that God wishes for us to mature into, we still can get wrapped up in that ourselves. And a lot of it's generational. I mean, we've all of us, no matter what generation, I was born in 1984, I'm 32 years old. There's a lot of things that, of course, prior generations had to do that I did not have to do. In other words, different processes when it came to you know, doing different things that were much more difficult because technology had not advanced to quite the level and uh, industry had not advanced to quite the level. But no matter what generation you live in, I think that it's safe to say at least in the last 400 years since the Industrial Revolution and since this technology boom that we have seen, I think that every generation can look back and see that sometimes there are certain things that past generations did that is much more difficult in the way that we do them ourselves or the way we don't have to do them now in this day and age. So I have three objectives for us today. And I'm going to try to accomplish these three objectives by presenting with us three different applicable points that we can employ in our lives that is basically brought out and derived from these verses, James, the first chapter, verses 2 through 11. The first objective, before we leave here today, what I'm wanting to get out of this message with, with all of us, not just you, but me included in this, is to understand how James tells us we are to respond in the midst of trials. Secondly, I want us to understand what the goals of trials are, or the goal, because it's not a means of itself. It's not, you know, it's a means to an end. It, the trials are not just trials just so we can go through trials. We're going to see that there's a purpose that God has presented to us for presenting us and for allowing us to go through certain trials. And thirdly, I want us to appreciate the process of trials for what they produce. So understanding the goal of trials under, allows us to have an appreciation for those trials, or at least for what they produce. And so, just to give us a little background before we read these passages, last time we were here, we talked about some of the different possible uh, things in the book of James, or at least the audience of the book of James. We know that James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes of Israel that were dispersed, to the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. He actually doesn't use the word Israel. He just says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And so there's a myriad of possibilities of individuals that he could have been talking to, uh, most likely because this book is written from uh, the point of view of James, which was mainly an individual that was, took on a position of prominence in the Jerusalem church. It is possible that he's referring to, of course, those actual Jewish individuals uh, that were now believers because he addresses them as brethren, a term that is used for those of like mind, someone in the faith. But there is uh, some different possibilities of what could have uh, been in James's mind. 
Now, in Acts, the eighth chapter, and we also talked about, we're not going to turn to Acts, I'm just going to refer to it. We also talked about how James uh, wrote this letter relatively early. It seems that the evidence is, is that this is one of the earliest documents in the New Testament. In Acts, the eighth chapter, what we do know is that there was this persecution that came about in Jerusalem. And so, as a result of that persecution, many of these early first believers were dispersed throughout the countryside. And so it's possible that James is referring to those individuals that were dispersed throughout, you know, outside possibly of Palestine or at least on the outskirts of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And so in the process of that, if that is possible, if that is possibly one of his groups of people that he's talking to, we're talking about people who have been exiled. And so when we look at the different topics that James mentions, what we do know is that James talks a lot about poverty. He talks a lot about rich. In particular, James is not so much concerned with theology the way that we see that Paul is. Paul is very theologically rich, and not that James is absent of theology, but James is more concerned about circumstances and the way that you respond to them. Ethics. That's why I chose, essentially, ethics as being the title of the series, The Ethics of Faith. Quite simply put, James's letter is about walking the walk, about living out the Christian faith. And so right here, very early on in his letter, obviously, by putting it early in the letter, there's an emphasis on trials. Something's going on with the audience that James has in mind. And possibly there are many different scenarios that could be involved in this, but we're just going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to kind of Talk about that main point and, and to give ourselves four different equitable things that me and you should put into our lives, should ingrain into our ethics as Christians. So verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and the beauty or the beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And so in looking at this main theme about making sure that we face trials in a godly way, my first point that I have for us is to Face trials in a godly way by having an attitude of pure joy. James tells us that in the midst of trials, our attitude needs to be that of joy. And I don't think that it's wrong for us to look at this and say, let me read that again. James is telling us that we are to have joy, pure joy is actually what the Greek comes out and, and, and mentions, in the midst of trial. This is a strange concept. You know, we know that Peter talks about how Paul sometimes wrote in them things hard to understand. I think the same could be said 
to James. But why is that a strange concept? It goes against the natural inclinations of our human nature. Who in their right mind says, yes, give me some of them trials. I take a little more. No one does that. This is a strange concept. How can anyone have joy in trials? And first of all, to be able to even answer that question, we have to answer what trials is he talking about? What trials is he talking about? So let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of a Jewish person living in the first century, and in particular, the shoes of a Jewish Christian living in the first century. If you were Jewish in the first century, life was not the most easiest. You uh, were a part of a heritage, a part of a religious ideology that was in misstep with the rest of society. For example, you didn't eat certain meats. You believe in one God that made people think that you were an atheist. That's right. The Jews and the Christians of the first century were the atheists. They didn't believe in the gods of Zeus and Apollos and all the different Greek and Roman gods that were presented to those living in the Mediterranean world during this period of time. And so they were perceived as strange, odd, out of step with reality, refusing to kind of get in line with you know, the norms of society. Now couple that with being a person that has faith in Jesus. Now not only are you looked as being crazy to those who are Greeks or pagans, but now you're also looked at as crazy to your own brethren, your Jewish brethren. And you're looked at as being a heretic. And you're looked at as someone that is basically throwing away everything that your heritage says that you should be after. Of course, you would argue as a Christian living in this first century world, that's not the case. But let's just imagine the different types of possibilities that those who James had in mind and he was writing to could have been going through. Life would not have been easy. You would have been marked. You would have been having to go and obviously do things in life that would outwardly show that you did not follow after the ways of the Greeks or the Hellenists. In fact, we even see there's controversy in the New Testament because some Jews actually were known as Hellenist Jews. They actually were okay with adopting Greek culture and, and, and adopting Greek ways of th saying things. And there was this controversy even in the early church because there were Hellenist Jews and then there were Hebrew Jews, Jews that were resistant towards that Hellenization, that Hellenistic culture. And so the Greek word here says all sorts of trials. And that's the truth. There's not one trial that you could name that's probably going to be applicable to everybody. We all go through different things. The actual word literally is colored rainbow. There's actually the same word that talks about the manifold grace of God. The many colors of God's grace. All sorts of trials. And the source of these trials can refer to either a trial we face from external forces or sources like persecution, money problems, death of a loved one, or even internal sources. You could look at like health problems, disappointment, spiritual problems that you may have. Often, which are the result of those external trials that we actually face. It's interesting, as I mentioned, that James places the issue of trials first in this epistle, which seems to indicate that this was an emphasis that he wanted to address first. Now, as I mentioned, all of us face different trials. Your story is different than my story. There might be some similarities, but there's going to be some differences. And depending upon what age we are, sometimes we're going to look at different things and interpret them as actual trials. A child might act or might perceive the, uh, you know, 
something that they don't get to do, a disappointment, whether it be, you know, maybe a toy they don't get is a trial that they're going through. A kid that's 15 years old taking a test in chemistry and has struggling to understand the concepts of chemistry and is not passing and has a failing grade could interpret that as being a trial that they are going through. Trials are from many different sources, many different degrees. They can be benign and they can also be very serious to the point of actually our life being at stake. But James tells us to have joy and not only just joy, but pure joy. Joy not mixed with some disappointment, but just joy is what the Greek actually brings out right here. That's nuts. And I'm not calling James nuts. I think it's natural and it's good to look at this from a human standpoint and say, that is not something that I can comprehend very easily. Despite this, we understand that James is trying to get at something greater. He doesn't leave us with just this blanket statement. Hey, you know, trials, you need to enjoy them. He gives us a reason for this. And that reason is because what trials produce. Now, let me be clear. James does not berate individuals that are experiencing trials and have disappointment, that are having heartache. This is meant to be encouraging. This is meant and in brotherly love. He mentions brethren so many times in this letter. Every single chapter, at least once, many times twice, he mentions the word brethren, which is adelphos, which is basically a term of endearment. It's a familiar, it's, it's putting himself and, and having empathy for the people in which he is writing to. I have an interesting quote for you. A guy by the name of Lee Atwater was the presidential campaign manager for George H.W., George Sr. Bush, in the 1988 presidential campaign. Well, right after that campaign, he was struck with terminal cancer, brain cancer at that. He died in March of 1991 at the age of 40 years old. But before this, he was actually interviewed, or he wrote something in Life magazine in February of 1991. He says, in the 80s, the 80s were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, prestige, I know I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? What price I wouldn't pay for an evening with my friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with the truth, or with that truth, rather. But it is that truth that the country, caught up in its ruthless ambition and moral decay, can learn on my dime. I don't know he will lead us through the 90s, but they must be able, or they must be made to speak to this spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor of the soul. And unfortunately, as we know, that that was written several years ago, and much time has passed, and many events have, have uh, you know, expired since then, but we know that things are not much different today. We still live in that same society. We still live in that, you know, about fame, about acquiring wealth, about acquiring prestige, about acquiring power. And we still live in a world that doesn't understand, that doesn't understand that life is not about those things. Because in the end, as James will tell us, all of that withers away. The transition of life, there's a time and there's a season, but in the end, a person who's in poverty, that had nothing in life, and a person who had everything in life, ends up exactly the same. So in the end, it's like Solomon said, it's all vanity. The second point I have 
is to make sure that we have or we respond to trials in a godly way by having endurance. By having endurance. The reason for this joy in trials, James tells us, is because what they produce. The Greek word here that James uses for testing, the testing of our faith, is a word that means, is, it's actually the Greek word dokomos, and is a different word than trials that we just read in verse 2, and it means a testing that leads to approval, and it's actually a metallurgist tool or term. That is, people who work in metals, people who look, work to refine metals and do different things to those metals, such as apply heat for the purpose of looking to their worth, looking to the value of that metal, uh, trying to, and also even has a strengthening element to it. In other words, that not just applying heat for the purpose of seeing if it's pure, if it's genuine, but also to burn off any of the impurities, any of the rubbish that could be on this. And this concept is also used throughout the New Testament, of course, in other areas with a positive connotation of testing us for, for the point of strengthening, for the point of strengthening. So what do they produce? Number one, they produce endurance. The New King James Version, or the King James Version, uses the word patience. But the Greek word here means a voluntary, active, steadfast, patient endurance. In fact, Barclay commented, that's William Barclay, he's a famous uh, Bible commentator, on this word, that this word means unswerving constancy. Unswerving constancy. One of the interesting things that baffled many of the non-Christians in the world leading into the second, third century, whenever many early Christians were being slaughtered, was that they didn't die crying, but rather singing Jesus' name. That they had an endurance that no one had seen ever before. And so just to kind of illustrate this, We've all heard the story before, not the story, but the motto, no pain, no gain. In my experience in athletics, of course, this saying has been cited to me more times than I can remember. And just to give us an example, we all know that in fitness, when it comes to training the muscles, you have to apply resistance. If you want growth, if you want to progress, you have to apply resistance. There's no way around it. And in the same way, we see this in the human being. We see this in other areas of the human life. From birth, we learn to deal with disappointments in life through experiencing them. If we go through our entire life without being able to, uh, to deal with any kind of disappointment, what growth are we going to have? Psychologists of early childhood education and early childhood development talk about a concept that's really important to instill in children. And that concept is the concept of grit. Grit refers to the ability of a child to be able to handle disappointment and despite that disappointment, continue to progress on towards the goal. To, to keep getting up and keep moving forward. To keep trying, not to give up. And in fact, that trait is actually seen through studies to be almost more of an indicator of a child's success later on in life than even their grades or other things. Instilling that ability, that endurance, that ability to handle disappointment and still progress on and not give up. And so what is this endurance all about? Like, is that what we're here for? Just so we can endure our trials? Or is there even something more? Is it, is it aiming at an even greater goal? Of course it is. And that is that endurance produces maturity. This endurance is required for us to achieve three pivotal things in our gospel 
journey. Number one, perfection, but which leads to completeness. And of course, we are not going to be perfect in this life. But nevertheless, the, buy, the bar is raised high for us. In the end, what we are trying to achieve is complete maturity in Christ. I like the way that the net, the New English Translation Bible, translates this phrase. It says, let endurance have its perfect effect. Not in the sense of us being perfect, like we're not going to be able to, okay, we're, we can endure a lot, now we're perfect. But what James is getting at is he's getting at essentially what the purpose of being a Christian is, what our journey is all about, and that is coming into the full stature of Jesus Christ. It's this word teleos that's in the Greek which basically means perfectly fit for the job at hand. Perfectly fit for the job at hand. And the job at hand for us is to obviously be, number one, followers of Christ, and to be able to trek the terrain that this Christian life brings. The rocks, the divots, the holes. It's not a smooth path. An example that can be seen in humans is when people are born, obviously we're born, we're not mature yet, we have to have guidance, we have to have supervision, and then eventually when we grow up into adulthood, the goal is, is that we are complete. We don't lack anything anymore. And of course, we understand that that analogy breaks down if we apply it to like we're perfect people and like we don't need to listen to anybody anymore. What the point is, is that in theory, adulthood means that you mature into a person that no longer needs guidance in the sense of has to be watched over, has to be babysit, uh, is, has all the mental and cognitive faculties that you need in order to function in society on your own. And that's the goal of maturing into adulthood. And this is what Paul, or not Paul, but James is telling us right here. For that endurance to produce in us that completeness, that completeness that results in, that teleos that results in us not having any need of anything. Of course, we're still going to need God, but in other words, we're perfectly equipped with the things, the tools that we need in order to do the goals and to, to do the work of God. Another illustration is in the Gospels, we see that maturity is the embodiment of the imitation of God. We know that in Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 35 through 36, it says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil, and therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. And so well, the reason I brought this out, and the reason that this has a relation to what James is talking about, is it's talking about those who are called sons, and of course that includes daughters, of anything, are called that because they emulate that being, that person, that characteristic. We see that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, not the James that we're talking about right here, were called the sons of thunder. And a lot of that was because of their quick anger. The sons of thunder. You know, what they emulated was this thundering anger. They, they were uh, individuals that had, you know, a short fuse. And so James right here is talking about completeness. And it's related to that concept that we see in the Gospels about maturing into the stature of Christ so we can be called sons of God. It's about characteristic traits. It's about obtaining the virtues of God himself. My third point is respond to godly trials 
or respond to trials in a godly way by seeking in faith. Now this is an interesting point here. Because when we read this, we see that James is saying, anyone that asks in faith and has any whatsoever doubt in him, don't expect God to do anything for you. And I think all of us in here can agree, and we can probably, you know, we don't have to raise our hand, but we can secretly think in our heads that we've asked God for things, and there might be some times of weaknesses where we say, you know what, I sometimes I don't second-guess God necessarily the way, like that in my mind, but I sometimes wonder, you know, is, is this really going to happen? We're all human. We're not perfected yet. We're not completed yet. We're striving towards that. And through the endurance of this journey that we're on that lasts until we are put into the ground or until we take our last breath, we're not going to be perfect. But it's interesting because what we see here is we see basically by seeking faith in wisdom. That's what he says. He says that anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but ask in faith. And so the concept that we see right here is number, or two things. We see that wisdom talks, is, is about intellectual, has an intellectual component. Wisdom has to do with knowledge, but also has to do with the practical component of applying that knowledge. It's not just about head knowledge, it's about heart knowledge. It's about having your heart and your mind in sync. Lots of people in this world have an abundance of knowledge. And they don't imply that, or they don't impute that into their lives. Many of us can think of examples of things that we know that we should not do, and we do it anyways. We don't apply the wisdom or the knowledge and show ourselves to be wise. All of us need wisdom from God. And right here, what I like about this is that James tells us that this wisdom is provided by God without rebuke. God doesn't chide us that we show him that there's things that we need. God doesn't say, you know, you're annoying, you know, I'm, I'm busy right now. But God, as a loving Father, is willing to provide this wisdom to us. Now, to get to that part that I was talking about, we have to require, or God requires this to be in faith. He says, let no man, basically, ask God of wisdom. That's a double-minded man that doesn't ask in faith and expect that he's going to receive anything. The words that James uses here is an individual who is a double-minded man. And this is an interesting concept because, yes, James is talking about how we need to ask God for wisdom and other things with complete faith, without doubting, without wavering. But the way that he mentions this double-minded man actually goes back to an individual who is double-souled. And it brings out more than just a person who has doubt in their mind about whether or not God's going to actually answer a prayer. It actually goes to the heart of an individual, of an individual who is double-souled to the point where they have half allegiance to God, but half of their foot still in the world. And we see this throughout the Gospels with Jesus. We see that, of course, in this world and throughout Christianity, this is something that we see. People who have half their heart in the church, in Christ, but still keeps their foot by the door so the door is still kind of open to the world. Because there's, there's so many things out there in the world that they just don't want to give up yet. And it's unfortunate. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Of course, Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verse 5, also brings out this idea, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, which Jesus quoted himself in talking about what the greatest commandment is. 
we see that when we come to God, we don't come to God just because it's convenient. Oh, you know what? I'm going through something. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I know I haven't really been thinking about God. I know, you know, I, I have all these other things I'm really more interested in. But right now I'm in need. So, hey, God, can you help me out? It's about preparing ourselves before we need it. It's about walking a, a life, walking a faith, and coming to God genuinely. Not just because we, oh, yeah, you know what, God, I need you whenever I need you. But when things are good, hey, I don't need you. I'm kind of doing my own thing over here. Let us not think that we're too good for that to happen. Because it can happen in our lives. The last point I have for us, and I'm kind of rushing through this because I know that I'm on a time limit here. The last point is, is that let us face trials in a godly way by glorifying God. James tells us to glorify God in a godly way. He encourages us to understand those of us who are lowly to glorify in the fact that God will exalt us. Not us as individuals because we're going to be exalted and everybody's going to be looking at us, but rather that we have the opportunity. No matter what, we see the New Testament constantly talk about those who are poor. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. We know that to be spiritually or be, to be physically rich sometimes can result in us being spiritually rich. But again, he says something strange, another strange concept, but let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Again, possibly including some of the things that could have been going on to whoever he was writing to. Because we know that rich and poor was something that was being faced by many Christians. I mean, think about in this day and age about how individuals could have been persecuted by means of being, you know, people being prejudiced against them because of what they believed. Their employment issues because they're in a foreign place. They're a place that's away from home. They've been exiled. We don't know the situations, but what we do know is this. In this life, we also understand that being a Christian is going to bring persecution upon us. And oftentimes, it's going to be bring persecution on us by people who think that they're a lot haughtier than they really are. And so what James is telling us to do is four things. And we understand what those four things are. He's telling us to respond to trials and, and joy. And the reason for that is because they produce endurance. And they also produce many different things that's going to lead us to be able to be complete, to be perfected, to, to have all of those things and not want anything else as far as being mature in our faith in Jesus. And so with this, as we move forward in this series, I have some more homework for us again. And that homework is now, if you would have done your homework last time, you would have read some of these passages because I actually had you read a little bit too much when it came to giving this message. But James, the first chapter, verses 12 through 27.